0: So 500 years ago, if we'll go back exactly 500 years, let's maybe 500 in a few months, and even up to March of, of that year, 1522, Martin Luther was still in hiding from the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, the most powerful man in, in continental Europe of that day. And it was in the May prior to that, in, May in 1521, that he had what they called the Diet of Worms, which sounds very strange in the English language, of course. But a diet, a diet, it was a day appointed for a judgment. That's what a diet uh, means um, in that context. Uh, a day appointed. And it was in the German city of, of Worms, which in English is pronounced worms. So upon this imperial day of judgment, and as it turned out, it was more than one day, we know that Martin Luther was brought uh, before the emperor, before the representatives of the Church of Rome, before the, the princes uh, that ruled under this emperor, the dukes and the princes. And he was d- it was demanded of him that he would recant that he would say those things that he had said and had, had, had written and disputed about, that he was to recant. And as Martin Luther was considering these, 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 this table that was filled with his works and he was dem- asked to recant them all, he asked for a day to, to pray and to consider his answer, and that was graciously given. And so the following day he came and he, he was asked to give his answer. And the answer we won't go into now necessarily, but he did say, well, maybe we will for the context sake, that it, he, he, he spoke to the, wor- the works on the table. He says, there are many good things, that, you know, that are in those books that I could not recant. Many clearly scriptural things and glorious things. Gospel matters. Obviously, I'm adding to the words, but this is essentially what he said. So he could not recant, and he would not go against his conscience. And so he refused to recant. Here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. As he spoke, this monk, this monk not the lowest of monks. He was an academic monk. He had taught in the University of Wittenberg for a number of years, and yet he was a mere monk surrounded by the the greats of this this holy Roman empire, um, the emperor himself, and the representative, the cardinals, the representatives of of the pope himself. And so there was a discussion after this uh, between the emperor and all the other uh, uh, those gathered in for advice and essentially uh, Martin Luther was now condemned and nobody was to give him help nobody was to give him any 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 provision any any, any protection was was now forbidden this now became law that Martin Luther was a, was a, was a fugitive and indeed but he was already promised that he had uh, uh, leave to leave the the diet uh, without being arrested at that moment but his his life was now forfeit. And if you know the story, you know that on his way uh, home that he was kidnapped. But actually, he was kidnapped by the good guys. So his protector, his, his patron, a man called Frederick the Wise of the Palatinate, uh, he, uh, he, pr- he, he kidnapped him and he took him to one of his castles, to Wartburg Castle. And he was kept hidden in that castle. Uh, under the guise of being uh, Sir George, the Knight George, Junker Jurg, And he stayed there until March of 1522. So 10 months long, he was pretending to be somebody else if there were any servants that would, that would meet up with him. And yet he spent those months not just sitting and not just, uh, not just wasting his time, but being very, uh, very studious, very fruitful, Uh, He spent those months translating the Bible into German. The New Testament he mostly completed in those 10 months, and it was in the September of 1522 that the New Testament was was actually printed and published. But he was also sending advice to the other ministers of the Reformation and to the nobles as well, how they were to deal with things and and even holding theological disputations by letter uh, to Roman Catholic theologians to to others, to Anabaptists uh, of that time. And so there he is. He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a prisoner. He's being protected. That's good. But the question is, what got him into all this trouble in the first place? And we might go back and think, well, we know in 1517, on October, uh, what happened is on October the 31st, that he, he, he posted those 95 theses, well, that's not really what got him into trouble. It certainly, it certainly, made, it certainly was what the Lord used to, s- to start beginning uh, the, the Protestant Reformation in, in Germany and then in, in, the, in the rest of Europe. It was a beginning, but it's not really what got him into trouble because that was to be a disputation, a, a theological discussion. He wrote it in Latin, and he posted it upon the chapel door of Wittenberg Castle. It's not as though it was translated into German that the common man could understand it, but those who could, the educated who could read Latin, they read it and saw this is powerful stuff, is 95 theses uh, against indulgences. And what are indulgences? If you don't know, that's where you could, you could pay the Rome to forgive the sins, especially of the dead, but also your own sins that you would would pay the church, you would give money uh, for sin so that uh, when you died and you went to purgatory, you'd you'd reduce your time in purgatory. And, of course, nobody had an idea of how how long you were supposed to be in this non-existent place, purgatory. And it was a great money-making scheme for the Roman Catholic Church, which is why they carried on, and they still carry on today. They haven't stopped indulgences. They still sell people a falsehood, uh, I would say, yeah, well, you can, you can reduce your time in purgatory by a, by a thousand years if you pay this much money. And then the hope is, and this is emotional manipulation, is that you can pay this much money that your dearly beloved who have deceased, who have gone uh, into the grave, that you can pay, that their time in purgatory would be reduced. Of course, there is no purgatory. The Pope's laughing all the way to the bank and still is. But God's wrath is upon him for making merchandise of men's souls. That's what concerned Martin Luther. And yet that's not what got him in the greatest trouble. What got him into the greatest trouble was his understanding, what led to his conversion, because he probably wasn't even converted when he put the 95 Theses on the door. But it was his understanding and his teaching of the book of Romans, and especially as we've already looked at maybe last year or the year before, of Romans 1 and verse 17. Romans 1 and verse 17, it says, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And this was yet groundbreaking. Groundbreaking. It was this uh, soul-saving, reformation-causing truth that the sinner is made righteous before God by faith alone, and not by works, and not by golden coins, and not by indulgences, and not by any sacraments, but only by faith in God. And therefore, we come to the verse 28 in chapter 3, where it says, as Paul has been going through these these matters for most of chapter 3, and saying, therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law, without the deeds of the law. And why was this groundbreaking? It was hardly groundbreaking. We're reading it in the Bible. It's it's clear apostolic teaching. In fact, it's not just apostolic teaching. For for what would we understand? For this is what we read in verse 21 of our own verse, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, it's revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So it's, it's Old Testament doctrine as well. The Old Testament was speaking of this. Indeed, Abraham the father of the faithful, saved by faith and not by works. And that's what he goes on to next in chapter 4 of Romans, to open up that connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament and realizing, wow, two dispensations but one gospel, one covenant of grace. So why was it then groundbreaking? Well, no, we understand it wasn't new, but what was different was that within the Roman Catholic Church Salvation was not by faith alone. It was not by faith alone. And and the Catholic Church was the purveyor of salvation. It, it It was the shop front, as it were, to the world at that time of Christianity and of salvation. And so we have the gospel, we have the care for your souls, and this is exactly this and this plus this plus this plus this is the way that you might have salvation for your souls. It's not even certain. No, but for the Catholic Church, salvation was no longer by faith alone. Salvation, they would say, was to be preceded by a sacrament, by the sacrament of baptism. and you had to have that sacrament of baptism before there be any further development on the road to salvation. And then that salva- thats that, that after, after, after the sacrament of baptism, there was to be faith, there was to be faith. Well, in what? Well, actually faith in the church? in reality, although they would say faith in Christ, and that faith was also to be maintained by good works. It was to be maintained, it was to be established, but it was to be maintained, and as I mentioned, really that faith that they speak of is obedience to the church, it is attendance at mass, and it is making regular confession, and making diligent use of all the sacraments that the Roman church had added to the the biblical church. You may not know, what you, you do know, there are only two sacraments that Christ established in the New Testament, that is baptism, and that is the Lord's Supper. But they added another five, another five, and all of those you needed, well, you couldn't have ever have all five, yeah, because you either, one of those was for priesthood, a sacrament of priesthood, and the other one was a sacrament for marriage. And if you were a priest, you couldn't get married. So you could only ever get six. But six out of seven, if you got six out of seven, uh, then the Catholic Church says you might be saved and you you, you, you might be not too long in purgatory, which doesn't exist. Now, do remember this, and and some people make this mistake to say that the Roman Catholic Church does not say justification by faith. She does. She does say justification by faith. And she's been very clever about this, especially in the last 20 or 30 years, in going to to what should be Protestant denominations and and having uh, discussions and open debates uh, so that... You would have so-called Protestant denominations and the Roman Catholic Church coming together and making a declaration on, 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 on righteousness or justification and saying, yes, we all believe justification by faith. And the Protestants should be able to put a, a full stop there. But the Catholic can't. They have to put a comma. Because that's not the end of the story. That's not the whole story. That's not the whole truth. Because as soon as the Roman Catholic Church would believe that and teach that, she would be reformed and would lose all that earthly authority and lose all that money-making schemes, but she won't. The whore will not give up her money stream. And I use the language of revelation there. No, she cannot say justification by faith alone because Rome really teaches a works salvation. Yes, there are things that God has done, but you must do the rest. And this is where Rome's theology is is quite topsy-turvy because they teach that holy works buy salvation, whereas the Bible teaches that holy works come forth out of a true salvation. It's completely the other way around. You are justified by faith, and the Holy Spirit enables you to bring forth that sanctified life. But they turn it around and say, by doing works, by doing sacraments, by doing whatever the church says, and doing the, all these things, avoiding this and doing this, uh, that you're able to, in some way, to work your justification... Oh, yes, and you've got to believe as well. That's the truth. That's the reality of it. It's all about works and some faith on the side. Faith is the condiment to the plate of works, according to Rome. Now, that doesn't sound very good, so Rome will never describe it that way. But that's what it comes down to. So, Rome teaches her people not to look unto Jesus only, but to look to themselves to look to themselves. And so the Great Reformation question for you to consider is then, whom do you trust in? Whom do you trust in? Because what we can see in the Roman Catholic Church, and we can antithetically, we can, we can preach opposing their false doctrine and their errors, but then that takes the eyes off ourselves, and the word is no longer applied to us, and so the question is, whom do you trust in? How, how, much, how much of, of that, that, that very human, that very fallen human, that very fleshly old man of the flesh has an influence upon your own life, upon your own walk with the Lord, upon your own Christianity? How much truly is it of faith alone or are you trusting in yourself just a wee bit? Or maybe... Trusting yourself in an awful lot, and there's just the condiment of the gospel on the side. For whom you trust in says everything, says absolutely everything about who your Savior is. Are you your Savior, or is Christ your Savior? And that determines your salvation. Whom do you trust in? It's the title of this message with the Lord's help uh, this morning. We see the first of, I believe, three points, the perils of false justification. The perils of false justification. Read with me from verse 20 of chapter 3 of Romans. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. A number of questions then as we open up that verse and we consider... Our own selves, we we apply it to our own heart and to our own life, is do you secretly hold on to the hope? Very secretly, that nobody would know, maybe not even family members. Do you secretly hold on to that hope that your good deeds will outweigh the bad? That's really at the heart of man's idolatry. Man's idolatry is I can, I can do something to pay for my sin. I can do something to find favor with God. And whatever those things are, the atheist in the world will think, well, if I, if I do this and say this, I feel good in myself and therefore I am good. The Hindu, I think if he goes to this temple and he, and he performs this, this ritual and he does that every single week or whatever it is, or sells his children to the priests, It's so within man, and you see it coming back again and again and again in in actual um, formalized pagan religions of all sorts, but also what we understand also to be religious philosophies like atheism. Secretly holding on to the hope that the good deeds will outweigh the bad, and we, we, we know that maybe from from Egypt. If you know anything about Egyptology, you know that there, was, uh, there were scales, and, and, and the idea was that, the, that, that your good deeds would outweigh your bad deeds, and, if, and if, if depending on which way they, they, they tilted would, would determine your, your future life. That is in the heart of every single man, woman, and child. Even though they be truly converted by the gospel, it's still in there. It still determines an awful lot What about this? This is a, a different question. Do you hope in God's forgiveness even though you clearly lack repentance? Again, that's another false hope. Do you hope in God's forgiveness even though there is no fruit of repentance? at all. Matthew 8, Matthew sorry, Matthew 3 and verse 8, we hear the Baptist saying, bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. If there's no fruit that matches repentance, there is no repentance. If there is no repentance, there is no forgiveness. If there is no forgiveness, there is no salvation, and you have deceived yourself and others. Maybe you are like many in North America. You hope you're saved because of a decision that you made upon a certain date in the past, and yet your daily life is not one of walking with the Lord Jesus Christ of calling upon Him, of reading His Word, seeing uh, what would the Lord say to me today. It's not a relationship of redeemed with Redeemer, but only hoping because in the past I, I, I did repent and believe, and yet you are clearly not walking with the Lord. And the North American church is filled with such false converts. And that's not to say there are none in the UK or none in the Europe or none elsewhere, but North America is famous for it. Or maybe you have an assurance because you are diligent in religious matters at home or at church, but again, your assurance is based upon you and upon your works and what you are able to do and, and what you think the quality and the worth is of those things that you do. That is a false assurance. Because again, instead of looking onto Jesus, you're looking unto yourself. And so whichever deeds of whichever law you aim to keep, be it the moral law, the Ten Commandments, be it the ceremonial law, i think, well, who keeps that? You'd be surprised. A ceremonial law, your own law, your own rules. Whatever law uh, you're, you're looking to keep, it makes no difference because no keeping of any law will help your soul. Or save your soul. As we read in verse 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Short of the standards of God. Short of giving God the glory in all that they do in their head, in in their heart, with their mouths, with their deeds, whatever it is. Wherever they do it, fall short of the glory of God. Everything. There's hints at the depravity of man. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, way below the standards of the Lord in everything. And because, therefore, we understand that all have sinned, that means all are guilty. All are guilty as sinners before God, and therefore everybody is unrighteous. And when you are unrighteous... It means three important things. It means many other things as well, but it means three important things for what we're looking at this morning. It means you are still unforgiven. It means you are still under God's wrath because you are still God's enemy. Three things to take notice of then. When you look to your own works and to your own rule keeping, and when you look at other people's weakness and sin and you then compare yourself with them and consider yourself better, or when you are impressed with your own holiness, these are all signs of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, looking to self looking to self, looking to to, to what you're able to do or what you think you are. And, of course, you are the judge of you, and yet the judge has already spoken. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And and self-righteousness is, it's a lie, as we've just read. No one is righteous. No, not one. There is none that are righteous. You are not the exception. You are not the exception. Let God be true and every man a liar because that is a lie. That self-righteousness is anything before God, but it is. It's a sin. It's a blasphemy. It's anti-gospel. It's anti-Christian. But if self-righteousness is a lie and it's therefore also self-deception, it's self-deception. You may be smugly satisfied with yourself and your keeping of rules and you're looking down upon other people, but God is your judge and He sees the truth. And thirdly, and I've already mentioned it, it is a sin. Self-righteousness is a sin. Looking to yourself, looking to your own abilities to please God, to satisfy God, and that means it's all outside of Christ. Or is Christ the condiment? It is because you are sinner that the Lord does not help you. There is no self-righteousness, shall we say. Yes, there is self righteous attitudes, but there is no righteousness of self. The law does not he- help you, the law condemns you. What do we see? For by the law is the knowledge of sin. It's the knowledge of this is sin, and, and, and I've sinned. And as the Lord opens up the Ten Commandments in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he goes di- deeper and deeper. He it says, It's not just the external. It's not just the external murder, but do you hate? It's murder of the heart. Yes, you've never cheated on your wife, but have your eyes looked with adultery upon another woman or women upon another man? There's a depth to the wickedness and the depravity of man, and the Lord opens up to reveal the depth of the, of these, of the, of the moral law in this case. Therefore, for this reason, for this reason, by the deeds of the law, strictly speaking, The moral law. But any other law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. So even if you say, Yes, okay, I can't keep the moral law, but all those thousand and one rules that you have added to your life and you expect other people to hold to, again that is a self righteousness. But the right and the biblical understanding of the law of God is that you have not kept it at all. You have been unable to keep it. You haven't kept it in thought, in word, in deed, and never done it, never kept the law because of unrighteousness, because of that fallen nature, because of that sin nature. But when someone who is in their sin or some Christian who is sinfully looking to their own works and to your own abilities and you look to your own religion, your own whatever, it makes you a legalist. The Hindu is a legalist. The Roman Catholic is a legalist. There are legalists amongst Protestants. Thinking, if I do this and I do that, then you're trusting in the keeping of rules, whether they be God's rules or your rules. But the great warning that goes out from our passage today as we're considering the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of man, as we're considering the righteousness that is only to be found in Jesus Christ, the great warning to the legalist is you are not trusting in Christ alone. And that is the word that separates the false religion of Roman Catholicism and true biblical Protestantism, alone. You're not trusting in Christ alone. You know, the Lord said very clearly in Luke chapter 5 and verse 32, He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And here's the problem with the legalist they think there is some righteousness within themselves. And Jesus says, I've not come to call you. I've not come to call the self righteous. I've not come to call those that have a look to themselves and to their own works, to their own holiness. I've not come to this. But I've come to call sinners to repentance. And that is ever the case. The Christian, that boasts of their own doings, despises the work of Christ. Because it is the work of Christ. It is the work of Christ's righteousness that we need, not our own. Because if you are corrupt if you are a liar, if you are a sinner, and that describes every single person that has ever lived after the fall, then there is nothing that you can do to work your own salvation because there is nothing that you can do that is righteous in God's eyes. It's stained. It's damaged goods. It's it's worthless. So we see the perils of false justification. Secondly, the glories of true justification. And here we see in the, in, the, in the next verse, verse 21, something of the glories of true justification. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God. And so what is it Then we understand when we're thinking of the righteousness, we're thinking of justification? Well, justification means this. It means being made righteous in God's sight. Being made righteous in His sight. And that contrasts with what we read in verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in His sight. Not by the deeds of the law. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, is revealed, is shown, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So as we see here, and we understand if you took on board the context of chapter 3, but he's speaking to Gentiles and he's speaking to Jews. And as we read in the latter part of that chapter, he's saying it very clear. In verse 30, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision, that is the Jew, by faith, and uncircumcision, the non-Jew, the Gentile, through faith. It's the same way. Justify the Jew by faith and the non-Jew through faith. But righteousness, you know, is so incomprehensible to the sinner. Yeah, we may understand it somewhat as a concept, but to, to, to fully understand it is, is, is great difficulty because it's, it's like a foreign language you cannot understand. It is so, it's just so different from our own experience in the world and in our own hearts and in our own lives. It's just so different. It is really an expression of the holiness of God when we consider what righteousness is. And and if you know what the word holy means, uh, an aspect of holiness means just the other, so different. It's like a blind man trying to uh, describe the appearance of the flame of a candle that he's never seen. How can you do so? How can you describe something that you're blind to being dead in trespasses and sins? You can't. We can't, which is why God has set forth in His Word to help us understand something of what true righteousness is, and warning us against self-righteousness, which is in our nature. And true righteousness is something we don't possess. So it's not as though we can go home and open the box and have a look at it and examine it and say, oh, that's what it is. We don't possess it. It is non-existent on earth. It's like a a, a chemical element that just does not exist, and yet we're, we're, we're spoken about it here. And it's not something you can buy because you have nothing to buy it with in the first place. It's not something you've experienced. Why? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are unrighteous the flesh, born-again believer, is still unrighteous. The experiences that we have are unrighteous, and yet God demands righteousness from everyone. He demands it from everyone. And that's how Paul opens up to uh, chapter 3, or at least the first uh, few verses, how shall God judge the world? But God demands it from Everyone. God demands it from everyone, but the gospel offers it freely to all that would believe, who would repent of their sinfulness, their unrighteousness, their self-righteousness, and would come to God through Christ. So, whereas every sinner is unrighteous, and it's still in the nature of even believers there is the righteousness of Christ, or as it says here, the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. So God offers justification. He offers the chance for the sinner uh, to be made righteous in his sight immediately. Let us just consider three, three truths that we have regarding justification. Justification, as we understand is, an, is a gracious act of God. The phrase that's used in the Shorter Catechism is justification is an act of God's free grace. So God is doing something which is good for us that we do not deserve. Instead of judgment, instead of continued damnation, God is being gracious. He's coming to the sinner and He's declaring the unrighteous to be righteous. So therefore, being a gracious gift, it's a free gift. It's a free gift to sinners. It can't be bought, and it cannot be earned. But That's what legalism says. No, no, you can buy it, you can earn it, you cannot. You cannot buy it, you cannot earn it, and we have nothing to buy it anyway. A- and therefore, to have God's righteousness, we must have God's grace. And so what is this justification? Well, it is this, is that when you come to God on God's terms, when you come to God through repentance and faith, when you come and lay hold on Christ alone, God looks at you through the lens of Jesus Christ and can say because of of who Christ is, He can declare you to be righteous. And how can He declare you to be righteous? Because looking through the lens of Jesus Christ, looking through Christ and seeing you who by faith are found in Christ, He has forgiven you all their sins, forgiven you all your sins for Christ's sake. Because Christ's death for sin. He accepts them as as righteous because the stain and the spot has been removed by the blood of Christ. Christ. And he accounts them to be righteous. He declares them to be righteous because Christ's glorious, pure, spotless, holy righteousness is accredited to them, is is imputed to them. These these are big names, but it's put to their account. It covers them. So here we are, we're a sinner. We come to the Lord Jesus Christ. We get down on bended knee. We're weeping for our sins. We're calling upon God for mercy. And so, and so what happens? God forgives us our sins because we ask for Christ's sake. The blood of Jesus washes us clean, and then the, and then the righteousness of Christ then covers us as believers as we carry on our lives, our new lives, our born-again lives living for Jesus Christ. So, it's not by law keeping. It's not by good works. It's not by religious activity. It's not by religious feelings. It's not by theological orthodoxy. It's by God's free grace. But the stinking, self righteous, and blasphemous offers of the sinner say, I don't need Jesus Christ. Oh, I might need him a little bit, but I don't need him all. But you're saved by grace, by faith in Christ only. So true justification is all of grace, but it is all by Christ. It is all by Christ. It is only Christ that has made that full satisfaction for God's justice. God is wrath with man. God is holy. God has been offended. God is still good, and God is still kind to all that live. But it's only Christ that has made that full satisfaction. It's only Christ that sacrificed his perfect and holy body and soul upon the cross. It is only Christ who was appointed to be that uh, perfect sacrifice, that acceptable substitute. It's only Christ that stood in in, in, in the place where you and I should have been. It's only Christ that hung upon the cross that we should have hung upon. And it was only Christ who was able to earn his own righteousness as the God-man. Yes, as, as divinity, he is the righteous holy God. But as man, to stand in our place, to die in our place, to, to live for us, he was the only one that was able to earn that righteousness and to give that to all that come to him. And it is only Christ that requires nothing from the sinner for justification. It's only Christ. He demands nothing except faith in Him, except faith in His righteousness, except faith in His work, except faith in His blood, except obedience to His gospel. And it is that glorious faith that binds the sinner to Christ forever. And so thirdly, therefore, the justification, true justification, is all through faith. It's all through faith in Jesus. And we understand that faith is a gift from God, that the Son of God purchased that gift, that Christ's Spirit works that gift in the heart together with His Word that is read, that's shared, that's preached. And what happens when this gift of faith is worked? Well, there is conviction of sin. There is conviction of sin. There's an opening of the eyes to the deep inability to save yourself. There's also, when the spirit convicts of sin, there is also an understanding in some way of the truth of the gospel. And you don't have to know everything about the Lord Jesus Christ. You, You don't have to know much at all except that God has given him to be a redeemer for your sin. And that's enough. And then you go to God. And you you pray to the Lord, forgive me my sin for Christ's sake. And then you receive Christ personally. And you rest upon Christ personally. And through Him and with Him you have everlasting peace with God. And so that points us to our last point, which is the way to your justification. The way to your justification, we read there in verse 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. And we'll repeat verse 28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. What is it if, as we've been preaching and looking through these verses, that you recognize yourself amongst those and we've mentioned those examples of people who are not justified by faith, who are looking to themselves, who are thinking, if I do this, I do that, or I go there, if I go to a church, if I kneel down, if I light a candle, if I, if, if I to try my best to keep the Ten Commandments, if I do, 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 do. What if you recognize you are one of those people? Well, then we've just understood it means you have no forgiveness with God. You are not righteous before God. Because you're not looking to Jesus Christ. You are looking to yourself. What do you do? Well, understand that which we've just looked at. You obtain the righteousness of of God only through Christ, not through yourself. It's only by grace, undeserved favor, not by hard-worked-for self-righteousness. And it is by faith. It's by trusting in Jesus and not in yourself. What is faith in Christ? It's a believing all of his word. It is an obeying, therefore, of all his word. And it is following Christ himself all day, every day. And it's also evidenced, John would say in his first epistle, by loving the people of God. So easy to think I've got the word of God and I'm obeying some of the Word of God, and I'm, I'm attempting to follow the Christ of God, but it's all evidenced about how you love the people of God, who also by God's grace have been saved, and by nothing in themselves. But if you trust in Christ alone, you will be justified, and this also without taking a glance to yourself and to your own works and your own abilities or your own history or whatever else it is that you put some hope in, but if you put it all in Jesus Christ, that means what? That means you can receive a full assurance of faith because you're no longer looking to you. You're no longer impressed with you, but you're looking to Jesus Christ alone. For by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight but now the righteousness of God, which is by the faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. Remember this, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Remember this, though, also, but when Christ calls you to repent and believe, He's not calling on you to add to His saving work. He's calling you to Himself. And when you come to Himself, we can just imagine this, that Christ, He... he, he He wears upon him this glorious, large robe, a glorious, white and holy robe. And and, and humanly speaking, we can imagine as the sinner flees to Christ to lay hold on Christ, what does Christ do? But Christ covers him with his righteousness, covers him with his robe. There is no righteousness outside of the righteousness of Christ. There is no salvation outside of Jesus. And therefore, look unto Jesus as the author and the finisher of your faith. Do not look unto yourself, lest you be a Pharisee, a legalist, or a false convert. Look unto Jesus alone. And may the Lord bless his word to our every heart. Amen. Our Lord, we give thee thanks and praise for the gospel. We can can do nothing. There's nothing we can do to earn thy pleasure or to earn salvation or to earn forgiveness, nothing. But we give thee thanks, O God, for thou hast given thy Son that whosoever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life and even true life now. Deliver us from legalism. Deliver us from pride and arrogant looking to ourselves. O Lord, it is wickedness It's blasphemy. It despises the blood of Jesus and is impressed with plastic beads. But Lord, let us look unto Christ as the author and the finisher, the A to Z, the Alpha and the Omega of all our faith and all our righteousness. And therefore, he will receive all the glory. Help us, O God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take up your songbooks, please. To hymn number 16, at the very front, hymn number 16. To God be the glory. Great things He hath done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son. Let us stand to sing these four verses of Hymn 16, please. the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen.